0: 1950s, the gridlock caused by the Cold War between the United States and Russia began to result in what we now call the space race. Rather than blowing each other up and killing half the human population, we decided a race for dominance in the realm of the stars would be a better way to settle the matter. Now, it started in 1957, where Russia took an early lead. And in fact, they were ahead of us for years. They, of course, had Sputnik, the first satellite, They launched the first animal into space. They were the first to land something on the moon, the first to orbit something around the moon and bring it back, and the first to send a human being into space in 1961. The American psyche, by and large, was devastated. We were getting totally showed up, so to speak. And it's at this point that President JFK decides to push against public opinion and offer the American people a challenge. He meets before Congress, suggests that rather than cutting space funding, they increase it with these historic words. These are extraordinary times, and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have opposed upon this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. With these words, Kennedy launched us into a decade of exploration and innovation that culminates, of course, halfway through 1969, with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon uttering those famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, how did that happen? We were years behind the Russians. And by the end of the decade, we had beat them to the moon. Well, there were a lot of factors, but I want to suggest that one of them is this. Kennedy catalyzed the American people by calling us a family and giving us a future. He said, guys, here's who we are. We are the people that are the leader in freedom's cause in the world right now. And this is the future that we have. To be the leader in freedom's cause, we got to get some people on that rock and get them back before the end of the decade. The family and the future together catalyzed an incredible window of American history. In this sermon series, that's what we're exploring, the family of the future, where we're not just talking about the American people, we're talking about God's people, the church. And last week, we we introduced the series, Happy and Diane talked about God's paradigm for the family. It's not a family of dominance, it's not a, a family of, of, of hierarchy and control, it's a family of, of partnership and submission and oneness. And this week, I want to talk about the other side of that, which is, what is our future? I, I'm sure you've noticed, but the, the overall trajectory of the people of God in our times is not one that looks like it's headed in a particularly good direction, You know, it wasn't even 50 years ago that that being a Christian was generally looked at as a positive thing, right? I mean, you were loyal and hardworking. You'd be honest, probably generous. Nowadays, Christianity is synonymous with, what, hatred, bigotry, maybe even violence. Which, parenthetically, let me just say, if you've been tracking with the events down in New Zealand these past few days, that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, regardless of what people are saying. The way of Christ is to lay down your life not to take others' lives. So, we'll go there, okay? <laughs> but here's the question I want to look at today. What is our future? Is, does what lies ahead of us, are we to, to kind of like just try and hold on as the world falls deeper and deeper into the quagmire of depravity that it seems to be, and we just wait, Jesus, will you rescue us by the skin of our teeth before we die? Is that the future we have ahead of us? I want to suggest to you that it's not. In fact, I want to suggest we have a far different future, a far brighter future. And we're going to take the journey to look at that future today. It's going to get wild and crazy, so get ready. Let's pray. Jesus, I so love the future that you have for us. And I thank you that you are like a million times the leader that JFK ever was. And so if he was able to catalyze us as a nation and bring us to the moon, Jesus, I ask that you would catalyze us as your people and send us into the glorious future you have for us. Lord, I just, I welcome you. Would you speak today? Would your words be flowing through my mouth? Would your words be impacting our hearts today? Lord, give us the future you have for us. In your name and for your kingdom's sake. Amen. Amen. So it is the future of the family. Well, to understand that, we need to do a bit of thinking about what the church is, and this is something that I find unfortunately most of us don't have a super clear picture of. Even those of us who have been faith in faith for a long time, the the kind of first uh, snapshot of what picture might be is often, or oh, sorry, of what church might be is often identified with a building. What's church? Oh, it's that place down on the corner where a bunch of people go on the weekend. They do something and somehow it makes God happy or something, right? (laughs) And we identify church with a a place or facilities. Now, but if you study the the words of the scriptures, you'll find out that's not really what the church is. The church isn't a building. The church is a people. And so when we learn that, we can come to this conclusion. Oh, well, the church is the collection of saved people. And that's often how we think about it. And... While that's true, it's a little bit putting the cart before the horse. It's actually defining the group by its members rather than defining the members by the group. And it turns out that the story of the Scriptures has a a richer, broader definition of what the church is, and it makes a huge difference if we're to understand our assignment. And so to understand the story of the church and the Scriptures, we're going to kind of like retell the timeline, uh, going real back real early. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, I want to suggest to you that what's fascinating about the Old Testament is it's not primarily a story about individual salvation. It's in there, bits and pieces, but the majority of the story is actually a story about the nations, not about people, individual people. And that story of the nations really kicks off with a really fascinating event called the Tower of Babel. Now, there's three kind of prologue events that happen in the Scriptures. There's the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and all of that. Then there's Noah and the Flood and all of that. And then there's the Tower of Babel. And it's after these three prologue events that God calls Abram and the story of Israel and the rest of the the story kind of follows this arc. But these three events are really important. And particularly, this Tower of Babel one tends to be misunderstood Now, here's what happens. Um, uh, After Noah and the flood and all of that, God tells the people, hey guys, scatter over the earth, fill the earth. This was the the original assignment, fill the earth, subdue it, do that. Well, they don't. They do the opposite. They they gather together and they say, you know what, we're going to build a tower so tall that we can climb up to heaven ourselves. And so they get to work on this tower and they're building it and all this is happening. And God looks down at them and he goes, hmm, this isn't a good trajectory We have humankind united in disobedience against me. I don't think this bodes well. And so he goes down there, and he scatters the people himself. And he does that by jumbling up their languages. So before they could all communicate with each other, well, God, I don't know, snaps his fingers, and now all of a sudden, not everybody's speaking the same language anymore. And what happens is they wind up uh, kind of clumping in languages and dispersing. And so some group of them find out that they're now speaking Chinese, and they start heading east. And then another group of people find out they're speaking, I don't know, Swahili, and they start heading southwest. And so we have this idea of um, the peoples scatter as a result of this event, the Tower of Babel. Now, I've been hearing this story since I was in Sunday school. And what was always conveyed to me is that this story is about the origin of the languages. And that's actually missing the point of the story. The languages are just the vehicle that God uses to create the nations. This is actually a story about the creation of the nations, and the languages are just the tool God uses to do that. Now, the reason this matters is this. The way the Jewish people understood this story was that what's happening at the Tower of Babel kind of reflects back a little bit to what was happening in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve are in disobedience. So what happens? God has to send them away out of his presence. In the Tower of Babel, the people of the world are united in disobedience. So what happens? God sends the nations away out of his presence. And so the the thinking is this. What's happening there is the nations are being sent away, disconnected from God. And it's in the shadow of that event, the very next chapter, Genesis 12, that God calls this guy Abram, and the story of Israel eventually begins. And this is the language that God uses. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation, so that I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now what's happening here? There's, a, there's, there's two events. Number one, the nations have been sent away, disconnected from God. But then right after that happens, God picks Abram and says, I'm going to make you a nation. In other words, all these other nations were sent away except Israel was the one God chose to have his hands on. And so the Israelite people understand themselves and they understand the world in this way. There's themselves and the other nations of the world. But at the same time, there is their God, Yahweh, and the gods of the other nations of the world. And so there's, there's a drama that's happening on two planes. The natural plane, where it's Israel and the other nations, and the spiritual plane, where it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, and these other lowercase g gods. And there's conflict that's happening in all these different areas. And Israel's calling is to be the nation that eventually introduces these other nations to the, to the, to the God above all gods, Yahweh. You're going to be the nation that blesses all the other families on the earth. Now, when we talk about this, it's important to maintain a biblical point of view. And here's what I want to say by that. Biblically, these other lowercase g gods are real entities, not fictional. I was told at some point along the line, and it may have been conveyed to you as well, that when someone worships an idol, they're pretending. They're making something up. And if we take that stance, then we're fictionalizing the words of the scripture. We're saying, well, the way the Bible treats the subject is not accurate. That's a dangerous place to be. I wanna suggest to you that this idea that there are other spiritual beings out there with their hands on culture and society forming it is a very significant idea. And we've sort of erased this thread of the scriptures. It is not a small one. Let me show you guys Interesting book. It's a hard book to get a hold of. It's called The Dictionary of Demons and Deities in the Bible. 950 plus pages of specific deities and demons listed by name in the scriptures. This is not, I mean, this is bigger than a Bible itself, (laughs) right? This is not a small thread. And if we erase this thread, then we're the ones being unbiblical. This is a real thing. And you might think, oh, all that was, you know, 3,000 years ago. No, 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 no. This is very relevant to our day. Let me introduce you to one just real quick so you can see how this lands concretely in our lives. Um, One of the deities that gets mentioned now and again is this deity called Ashtaroth. Um, shows up a number of times in, in Judges. Uh, there's a scripture, let's see if I can find it here real quick, that kind of depicts this, and you see it coming out now and again. Um, Judges 2.13, they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, Baal might be one you're familiar with, Ashtaroth a little bit less so. Let me tell you a little bit about Ashtaroth. First of all, Ashtaroth is a female deity. Baal and Ashtaroth were actually a couple, and it was their copulation that was supposed to, drive the season cycle. So Asheroth is a female. Asheroth is depicted, uh, she's carved as an idol in what were called, I believe, Asherah poles. You hear those mentioned in the Old Testament. An Asherah pole, you can find them, you can Google them, although I don't know that I would entirely suggest that, because an Asherah pole is a depiction of Asherah herself, with no clothes on. And she is well endowed. Because Asherah is a goddess of sexuality. By the time she makes her way through to the time of the New Testament, when we're speaking the language of Greek, she gets called Aphrodite. You may have heard of her from where we get words like aphrodisiac. Aphrodite is worshipped with temple prostitution. The word in Greek for these temple prostitutes is porné. In 1st Corinthians, we have statements like this. <clears throat> Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a porne? Never. Do you think it's possible that this goddess of lust depicted naked termed porne is still affecting our culture? Thinks you might have more worshipers today than she did then these things are very much real and alive and it would be a mistake to ignore them it would equally be a mistake to get too afraid about them right because the message of the scriptures is not that god is real and these other gods are imaginary but it's that our god is so much god that he's like the god of the gods and I think there's this great clip I just want to show that illustrates this so well. It's, it's from the, um, the very end of the first Marvel Avengers movie. I love the Marvel movies, right? And it illustrates the idea that not all gods are equal. And so let's roll that clip real quick, 20 seconds. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied by that. Puny God. (laughs) I think right there that captures the spirit of it, right? These gods are real, but compared to our God, it's like puny God. Wap 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 wap. Right. So, so these these beings are real, and this is the story. This is the context of when Jesus comes and the New Testament is penned. And so what's happening in the New Testament is not that whole story just gets cut off and restarted afresh. There's a continuity there, and that continuity is actually important. Israel's role does continue through into the New Testament, but in a way different than they had envisioned. See, Israel is more than God's Messiah delivery device. It's often the way we treat it. I don't know what the point of the country is. you got Jesus here. That's what really matters. Right? No, there's actually a really significant continuity. But what's happening, we have to think through carefully. So let's put a pause on the story of the nations, and let's think individually for just a moment, because we need to to draw a concept out. How does Jesus save us individually? He doesn't save us by coming to us and saying, you're a mess, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on all your faults. We're going to sand off some of those rough edges, We're going to work on some character here. We're going to improve a little bit of self-control. There we go. I've bandaged you up. You're ready to go. Jesus does not fix us. He says there's a different approach. Here's the thing. I'm going to unite the two of us together, and I'm going to kill you. But then I'm going to resurrect you. He doesn't repair us. He resurrects us. There's a difference, right? One is a new beginning, and it involves a death and a resurrection. And that's the journey that Jesus takes us on. By the way, if you've not been on that journey, you should. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. Okay, So God's way is not fixing, but resurrecting. When it comes to the story of Israel, what's happening throughout all the Old Testament is all of Israel's faults are coming out. She's not able to follow God. She's not able to minister to the other nations. For like 45 minutes at a time, they're faithful to Yahweh, and then they're bowing down to something else what's happening? Well, her faults are rising to the surface. And it culminates when Jesus Christ shows up, who is literally her God and her king. And what happens is Israel, rather than embracing God, turns against him. Says, you know what? Crucify him. His blood be on us and our children. There's 120 that are following him by the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. And the most of the rest of the nation has actually made him an enemy. We hate you. And so what's happening is there's this kind of building of Israel's faults until Jesus, the king of Israel, dies. Labeled king of the Jews. An important detail. He dies not just as our personal Lord and Savior, but as the king of Israel. And when he dies, Israel proper dies, because he's the king. And when he resurrects, Israel resurrects as a nation now, not of the earth, but of the resurrection. Jesus is still the king of Israel. It's just that his realm now lives in the realm of the resurrection, not the realm of the natural. And so Israel itself is brought through death and resurrection, and Israel resurrected is what the New Testament calls the church. The church is not just the collection of believers, the church is the nation of the new creation that's here to fulfill Israel's assignment. Israel couldn't do it on her own, it was impossible because she was a fallen nation of the world, like all the nations of the world. But as a nation of the resurrection, she's now called to fulfill israel's task which was what to bless all the other nations on the earth in light of all of this let's read the great commission matthew 28 jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me all authority in heaven Over these lowercase g gods. The heavenly plane, I now have all authority. And the earthly plane, over the nations, I now have all authority. I am now in charge. I'm the boss of both of these realms. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go and disciple the nations themselves. He's not giving us an evangelistic calling here. He's not saying, go make converts from all nations. What we usually hear, to hear that is to lower the commissioning from apostolic to evangelistic. He's saying, go fulfill Israel's assignment. Go disciple the nations themselves. You guys are the nation in connection with the God above all gods, Yahweh, Go displace these lowercase g gods from influencing the nations and introduce them to the true God. How do you do that? Baptize these nations, immerse them, soak them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the true God, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's just retasking the church, the new Israel, the resurrected Israel, with the original assignment. And he's saying, go do what you were assigned to do in the first place. This is why, parenthetically, not too many days later, the birth event of the church, the day of Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out, and the language breakdown at the Tower of Babel is reversed as the gift of tongues begins to communicate with every tribe and nation. There's a a continuity, there's an arc that's happening here. The whole of the book of Acts is actually the beginning of the story of the church discipling the nations. Nation to nation to nation to nation to nation. That's the theme that's happening there. And so what is our future family of God? Our future is to disciple the nations. Not to be afraid of them, not to, not to be like, oh my gosh, our, our world is, is just getting so bad. No, guys, we're the ones who are following the guy who has authority over all that stuff. Now, somewhere in here, they got some really bad teaching that got mixed in, which gave us a mindset which is that the church is supposed to barely survive until Jesus rescues us from the big scary world. And that would make sense if the cross had failed. But Jesus says all authority now belongs to me. That picture says authority still belongs to those other gods. They're gonna rule the show until Jesus comes back. But that's not the story, guys. The story is they're cowering in the corner because Jesus won. They know that our God is the Hulk going wham, wham, wham. And they should be cowering and afraid of us, not the other way around. Wham, 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 right? And so guys, let's, as a church, as a family, let's realize this, okay? We cannot afford to begin to get defensive when it comes to our culture. We can't start circling the wagons because we'll never disciple the nations if we're trying to protect the church. Say that one more time, because we need to hear that. We will never disciple the nations if we're trying to protect the church. Doesn't work that way, right? We we can lead, the future belongs to us. It's ours, this is something we gotta be afraid of. The future is amazing, it's called heaven. It's a really cool place, and it belongs to us. And so when the world is moving towards the future, you know what should happen? They should run into us because we're already there. That's the way it's, it's supposed to work. We don't have to be afraid and go on the defense. We can lead. We can disciple the nations. Now, putty, this is all well and good, but, like, you're talking super cosmic, bro. Like, how does this apply to my life in 2019 in central Illinois, right? What does this mean for me? I'm really glad you asked that question. It actually means a lot for you, and it means a lot for us as a family of faith, okay? Jesus gives us a clarity on the assignment. He says, go and make disciples of the nations. How do we do that? Comma, baptizing them, the nations, in the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Now, that word baptism, does refer to the whole like dunk and water thing, right? But that's not the only way the word was used. Really, it could be like soak, saturate is kind of an idea. Pickle is actually where the word, from what I understand, originally came from. You would baptize a cucumber in the brine and it would become a pickle was the idea. So what's our assignment? Our assignment is to take the area that we live in, East Central Illinois, and baptize East Central Illinois. In the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, to baptize East Central Illinois in the name of the Father means that we as the church begin to increasingly step into the fact that we as the body of Christ on the earth today have the unique assignment of displaying the Father to the world. This is what happened when Jesus came. He came and revealed to a world who didn't know the Father who the Father was. And that means for us, as the body of Christ, continuing that assignment, our assignment is to reveal to the world out there who the Father really is. We are the face of the Father to our communities. And so if we want to baptize Our portion of this nation in the name of the Father, it means that we begin to seriously take the assignment of living the Father out to Champaign and Urbana and Sullivan and Arcola and Muhammad and Bloomington and Normal and all the other places that we call home. Guys, if we don't flesh out the Father, no one can. We are the only ones who can reveal the Father to the world. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except for the Son and who the Son chooses to reveal Him to. We are His body now. We get to choose to reveal Him to the world out there. Now, I want to take a minute, and I want to brag on our Sullivan community because our Sullivan community has been pressing into this and seeing some really cool things. And so, Sullivan, like, we're proud of you. Keep going. Now, Sullivan... We planted uh, the campus a little more than nine years ago, and um, Sullivan has been pressing into this for a long time, but it's really in the last three, four years that there's been some acceleration on learning to father the community. And I'm going to give just like this much, but go talk to some of the leaders down there if you ever have the chance. Jim and Lori Plank, or Chad and Carolyn Yoder, or, or others. It, it's honestly mind-boggling what God's doing in that community. Let me, let me give a, a couple of high-level highlights. About three, four years ago, um, uh, a store comes for sale in the Sullivan community. It was a big box store type building. Uh, I can't remember the exact store, but, you know, the kind of thing where if you had a big department store that went for sale. It was valued at, I think it was $1.8 million. And it just had vacant for months because it wasn't worth that. No one wanted to to spend $1.8 million on it. And so after a number of months, we said, you know what? We could probably do some cool things with that building. And so we went in and we said, look, here's the deal. We're not going to give you $1.8 million, but can we work something out? And uh, one thing leads to another. We wind up buying the building for a little more than $300,000 uh, plus uh, a bit of a tax write-off or something like that. So we have this building. Now, we go in and we get the, the building assessed and the taxes reappropriated for the sale price of $300,000 instead of $1.8 million. And we go to the community and we say this. Guys, we know that legally, we can take this building off the tax roll. But we're not gonna do that. Because we're here to father the community. And fathers give, they don't take. And so we could take this off the tax roll, but that's a lose to you guys. We're gonna volunteer to pay taxes on this building even though we don't have to. Because we believe that we're here for Sullivan. Now, you can imagine the community leaders are going, what? We're not used to church behaving like this. And what happens is one thing leads to another. First, a collection of uh, community leaders, business leaders, and leaders from our church start gathering. They start having roundtable meetings. And once a month, they're gathering, and they're basically asking this question. Guys, let's dream about Sullivan. What could be the future of our community? What's happening there? We're fostering a conversation about God's dreams about Sullivan. Sullivan. All of a sudden, things start happening. First of all, some business leaders start saying, we love what's happening here. We're going to start investing in the community by investing in the church. So they start paying us to do this whole project. Before you know it, the community is actually coming to us saying, we want to invest in our community by investing in you too. But it's a little tricky because we have separation of church and state. So as a city, we can't actually just give you money straight up. So what if you form this nonprofit arm so we can give you money? So the city is creatively finding solutions to give us money because this thinking is leading to incredible things. There's like a business incubator thing going in there. There's a community center. There's an event hall. And all of this is getting used for the betterment of Sullivan. This whole thing begins to accelerate. Next thing we know, there's a daycare that gets given to us. And we're now discipling 100 kids of the next generation in the things of the kingdom and being paid to do it. Yeah. Next thing we know, we're beginning to have conversations with the police department. And they're saying, one of the big problems in the city is we've got all of these like, uh, teenagers that are getting into trouble. Could we start a teenage mentoring program? We have a college that's asking to use our building to create courses. What's happening? the whole community is beginning to get caught up as we're fathering the community. We're not here to fix it. We're here to empower it with the dreams God has for it. Sullivan, we're so proud of you guys. Keep it up. It's amazing. It's awesome. Okay? Learning to father our community. What does baptizing our community in the name of the Son look like? Oh, I'm way over, so I'll have to conclude quickly here. <laughs> <laughs> Baptizing in the name of the Son looks like living as the body of Christ a little bit more fully. Like we are his, the, the, the body of the Son. And so to baptize our community in the body of the Son means to immerse it in the, ch- the church, one of the challenges here, I think the biggest challenge here, is that the church is is like the most fractured and divided organization that has ever existed. You guys realize Jesus is not coming back for a bunch of brides. He's coming back for one. But we behave completely opposite to that. How many other churches are right down the road and none of us have given them a second thought today? There are other parts the same body, they're actually part of us, and we're part of them. But we think and we act like there's no overlap. Guys, that's actually confusion on our side. I believe that God wants to unite and connect the churches to one another. A body connected to one another will have the ability to influence far beyond any way that, that we could otherwise. Now, as a, a first fruits of this, I'll share a little bit about School Kingdom Ministry, which is one of the vehicles that God has been using to do this here. About seven, eight years ago, uh, Hap said, let's, let's do a school type thing, and we, we started this school, and what happened was churches began to come to us and say, this thing is cool, we want this. We're like, what? We weren't expecting that. But what happened was God had deposited a grace in our community for training and equipping and releasing in the things of the supernatural. And that grace was now beginning to flow, not just to our church, but to other churches. And as much as, like, many of us in here have taken School Kingdom it's profoundly impacted our lives and whatever, that's great. We've got to realize 10% of the impact has been in this church. 90% has been out. You can go ahead and put the map up. This is just uh, uh, some of the sites that have taken it in the last, like, five years. There's, like, 150 different churches They've participated in this thing. 5,000 graduates. What's happening? There's a grace here that's beginning to flow to other church communities. Because you know the question I begin to ask myself? What grace do we actually need from someone else? Where are we lacking that lives over there that God wants to give us, that we can more fully live out our role as the body of Christ? There's many members but one body as we learn to connect with one another, to realize God's deposits and resource and share with one another, it's gonna change the game. The church numerically has a tipping point in our country. If you've ever read the book Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell, great book, basically says this, if you have 20% of the people with any social phenomenon, it'll take over everywhere. Once 20% of people had iPhones, everybody was gonna have a smartphone. It's, a retif- it's, 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 just, it's gonna happen, it's just a matter of how long it takes. We have a well more than 20% of Christians in our land. The problem is we're not connected to one another. So we don't get tipping point effects because there's not 20% vineyard, or 20% Anglican, or 20% Catholic, or 20% whatever. None of us have 20% on our own, but together we've got plenty. Don't think we're behind in this thing. We're not behind. We're just not connected. Baptize the world in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, lastly, in the name of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who's operating within the body of Christ, right? It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's empowering us as believers and connecting us as a family. This is is the foundation that actually has been poured into for 40 years here. We believe everybody gets to do this stuff and that the Holy Spirit wants to use you to change the world. And so let's lay hands on you and release you to operate not just in the natural realm but in the supernatural realm because our task is supernatural. It's not natural. We can't solve the problems of the world with natural solutions. Poverty is spiritual more than it's natural. For example, now we need natural vehicles but it's a spiritual problem. So let's lay hands on you, get you filled with the Holy Spirit so you're operating in the realm of the supernatural. And oh, by the way, you know what you're going to find out? The same spirit that's in me is in you and him and her. And oh my goodness, we're family because we're all been united by this one spirit. If we want to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know what that looks like for us concretely in our lives? It looks like pushing the gas pedal on all three of these. And I believe that that is the next journey for our church over the next 10, 20 years. There's been an incredible foundation over here that has begun to actually leak over into these other ones. We've leaked over into fathering the community a little bit. We've leaked over into connecting with the church a little bit. But there is more to come in each one of these areas, and God wants to push the gas pedal on all three. That's the future of our family. That's the call that God has given us. Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's given it to us to displace these other powers that are trying to affect our nation. I don't know about you, but I say not on my watch. Jesus has all authority. We're going to begin to baptize our communities in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And see that stuff topple because Jesus is king. Jesus, you are awesome, and right now, I just really want to worship you, and so I am glad that we get to do that. (laughs) Thank you that you are incredible, thank you that you are amazing, thank you that you are victorious, and thank you that you have made us, God, uh, the nation of the resurrection, God, that can now displace the spiritual powers of this world, God, and introduce the nations to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are amazing. You are incredible. Lord, we say we are in for that assignment. Sign us up. We are here for that task in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the message today. To experience more powerful messages, go to vineyardlive.us or join our Vineyard Live Plus community to view conferences, trainings, and special teachings.